0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Start Somewhere for Married Claire with me, Sarah Vaughan. And this week, I'm delighted to have a very special guest joining me from San Francisco, Aisha Berenblatt, who is the founder and CEO of Remake. Hi, Aisha. How are you, love? Hi, Sarah. I am so good, especially since we get
1: to have this conversation. I'm so looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, me too. And as you know, with this podcast, we always start with you know where and how someone grew up because I, I'm convinced that like people's roots and starting life always kind of informs actually kind of what they end up doing later on in life. So love to hear your story, which I know is very special.
1: Why? Thank you. Um, you know, so I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan and have spent about half my life in Pakistan and the Middle East, and then the other half of my life here in San Francisco, California. And as someone who has really advocated for the justice and well-being of the women behind our fashion, I, I do think being a first-generation immigrant Being in Pakistan and seeing factories firsthand really was this awakening for me that so much of our fashion is made by women that look like me, and that this could be a first lift out of poverty for her. And yet, today, that's simply not the case. And so, uh, yeah, my early childhood has very much formed the activist that I am today and really galvanizes me to keep fighting harder for a lot of the people that don't have voices and
0: a seat at the table. Which is so wonderful. So there you are, you're growing up in Pakistan, in, in Karachi, I've never been to Karachi, but I understand it's a very beautiful city and, 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 and I'd love to go one day. And you went to school there, Tell us a bit more about, about, about kind of those experiences. Yeah, you
1: know, growing up in Karachi, which is big urban metropolis, I, you know, compare it to New York or, you know, one of these cities that never sleeps. There is a big factory base there. Um, and, you know, growing up, you would see young women often coming from villages into the cities or, you know, leaving the safety of their households for the first time. Dreams in their eyes around this is a way to really be lifting their entire family, their households out of poverty. Um, I had some family that ran garment factories and in those early hilly days, there really was this sense that globalization, outsourcing was going to lift, you know, women workers in particular in the global South. And so I was always really interested in this question of how can we assure that work is dignified work and that it really does assure women in particular to be lifted out of poverty. My mom was a single mom. And so, you know, worked very hard to get me to the U.S. to go to college. I was the first woman in my family to go to university. So I often felt this privilege of being able to have this type of access to a higher education, but knew that that meant I wanted to give back and be sure that where I came from, the women whose shoulders I was standing on, there is a way for me to be thinking about and advocating for their right and their dignity.
0: Wow, that's such a beautiful story, um, you know, and, and, and what an amazing mum you, 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 you must um, have to, to, to do that because, you know, I mean, for, to go and study overseas was really, you know, I imagine a dream, you know. <laughs>
1: Dream for me, lost for her in many ways. You know, here I am some 20 years later, married in America and run a nonprofit here in the Bay. And in some ways, she often just talks about this sense of loss. You know, people often talk about how immigrants take, take, take from the countries that they come from. But the truth is, we also give a lot. We work very hard to gain our place in the world. Uh, But we also give up a lot, our language, our food, sounds, smells to to be somewhere, um, to make a better life, not just for ourselves, but for our families back home, too.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure your mother is so very proud of you and everything you do. And, you know, so you go to, I mean, that must have been quite a culture shock for you going from Karachi to the US right? I mean like I, I like, mean I still
1: speak if you could hear it, with a little bit of a clipped British accent because you yeah, know I China a convent school and we learned the Queen's English and so here I show up you know University of California Berkeley you know home of the sweatshop movement and found a lot of my activist people here Uh, but in many ways it was a huge cultural shock you know I couldn't quite understand uh, the American way of speaking you know it's very effusive um, <laughs> which is different from what I'm used to. The accent is different. The football analogies, I completely, when my professor would share them, I had no understanding of what he was saying. Um, but in many ways, he Berkeley- Well, really crickets anymore or something like that. Yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah no I mean I mean how amazing and my own experiences of kind of going to I I, I love America and I love I love the enthusiasm and energy and and, and and of the and passion that Americans have it, it, it they have this extraordinary like candy attitude which is
1: mm-hmm.
0: mind-blowing um and I have so much kind of appreciation for that and 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 quite extraordinary. I mean, like, yeah, going from 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 yeah that very sort of British <laughs> colonial sort
1: of upbringing, and, you know, the uniforms and you know, and also growing up in a Muslim country with a lot of expectations as as a woman, and you know, uh, of how to behave and how to be in society. So there was a lot of barriers to be broken. You know, and I remember first couple of times being very hesitant in raising my hand in class but you know at Berkeley it was very welcome to to speak up and shout out your opinions Uh, I was amazed at just how ill-dressed the students were also it's like I'm wearing pajamas to the classroom you know because we were taught to be groomed quite carefully back home so um it was it was interesting but I, I really do think that one of the ways that we become Better citizens of the world, that we can have more empathy, is to be doing this sort of migration and travel and just experiencing different cultures because we realize how much more we have in common than different.
0: I I feel that's so important. And, you know, whilst we can't necessarily travel, you know, now in real life. We can definitely travel in Zoom, and 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 it's so special, and and you know, it's one of the great privileges I've had within my life is to travel a lot, and I have this innate curiosity about people's cultures and 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 and, and way of life, and 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 appreciation for finding out, you know, like how everyone lives, and and it's just so great, and I think that, you know realizing that everyone is you know everyone has the same ambitions really in life mm-hmm. everyone wants to be happy everyone wants to be loved everyone wants to be okay you know mm-hmm. financially I mean like we're not so different after all like you know Absolutely. who we worship or what we wear or
1: stuff it's really
0: silver lining right
1: in zoom is that here you are sitting south of France here I am sitting in San Francisco California we can have this Lovely, thoughtful, honest conversation on a screen. So that is one of the silver linings. Is this sort of connection
0: that technology allows us to do? Really is. So, what did you? What I mean, I, uh, what did you read, or should I say, what did you study uh, in, in, at, at university?
1: Yes, yeah, so I got a degree in public policy. You know, very early on, I knew that I wanted to be of service. But one of the things that I was really struck by at university, you know, I had some wonderful professors. It really was the Berkeley campus where I had this awakening of a social justice gender lens. I knew I wanted to do something around the equity and ability of raising women uh, in the workforce. But it was the early days of a lot of talk around sustainability and corporate responsibility and you know i took a lot of classes at the business school and really watching fashion brands in particular talking about how they were going to make wonderful profit and save the world while doing it. And having a different heritage, having a different sensibility, growing up in Pakistan, it didn't quite sit well with me. You know, I had seen how factories run, I had seen sort of, you know, the infrastructure in many ways wasn't keeping up with the order volume and growth. And this notion that somehow you were going to be good for the planet, good for people, and good for profit, um, just didn't feel right. And you know, I was just struck by how much of those early days of any kind of sustainability conversation was really controlled by business, um, and there were very few worker voices at the table. And you know, in my career, I have had the privilege of sitting down, breaking bread, getting to know the remarkable women who make our clothes and dye houses and factories, and There's so much of that story that doesn't get told. The fact that she is a feminist in her own right, that she is fighting against a system that is set up to oppress her, you know, and it's not that she needs to be saved. It's that the system around her that keeps her in the cycle of unlivable wages, of poverty, of gender-based violence, that system needs to be dismantled. And so, you know, studying policy and business at university in many ways gave me the ammunition to understand how the systems are set up. Uh, but it really was, you know, in founding Remake and really speaking truth to power, which, by the way, was the mantra of my policy school, that I was able to bring all these worlds together. And I really don't look at this as a job. You know, this is my work, uh, my lifetime's work, this, it's about uplifting the voices of the women who make our clothes for people to understand that there's a generation of women's hopes and dreams hiding in our closet and that we have a way of using our customer power, our voting power to assure that the industry doesn't leave her behind.
0: Yeah, so, so amazing. I, I, I just so love what you're doing. So when did you, when did you actually found Remake? And, and, and tell us a bit about the, the, the journey to founding this, this bold move. Remake.
1: <laughs> um, so Remake is five years old, you know, right out of university, I did what a lot of university students do, which is go work for a strategy consulting firm. I needed a visa. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what I did. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I needed a visa. I needed to pay off my student debt. Uh, but I worked for a sustainability consultancy, business for social responsibility, you know, moved up in the ranks there to run their fashion vertical. And so I worked with a lot of high street brands, you know, as well as athletic brands, Nike, Zara, H&M, Levi's, Gap, essentially to get them to embed human rights in their supply chains, to be thinking about the business case of investing in the global workforce that brought their product to life, Uh, I then spent some time with the United Nations International Labor Organization, really working more on the policy side, getting government unions and brands to the table, again, to address working conditions in the fashion industry. And I think the story here also for people listening is to find your groove, to find the right place for you, takes patience. You know, we often love to talk about these amazing heroes who find themselves at, I don't know, 14 years old and are so successful. But for me, it took a few different tries. You know, I always worked. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and I think it's important for us to share those sort of stories too. You know, I appreciated all the time I put in the public sector as well as the private sector because it gave me a sense of the players and what motivates business and how much business can do from the goodness of their heart, or what can or cannot be done within the multilateral structure of the ILO. But then, you know, Rana Plaza happened. And for those who aren't familiar with Rana Plaza, it was the biggest industrial disaster of our time. A huge factory complex fell down. It took days to pull the bodies of mostly women who looked like me out of the wreckage. And for what? You know, making $9.99 pair of children's place pants or, you know, uh, pajamas for Walmart. And it was... Just a real reckoning for those of us who have been doing this work internally around. Gosh, we're just not making progress fast enough. Our clothes are coming to us sooner, faster, cheaper. And there is a very human cost to this. And that's really where Remix founding story comes from. You know, five years ago to this date, I remember having a lot of those shower thoughts, you know, what else, what else can happen? And sitting down with a lot of my development friends to say, how can we galvanize more people to care? And, you know, one of the things I kept coming back to was, I had had in my career, the privilege to really get to know the people who make our clothes. And by getting to know her as a full human being, to understand her hopes and dreams of loving fashion and favorite lipstick color and why, you know, she was in this industry and she wondered if any customers ever thought about her, um, that I wondered if through the power of social media, through video, if we could really bring the human faces of the people who make our clothes, not just the sad stories, but the actual hopes and aspirations. Could we really humanize the industry and get a generation of women to care? And you know, our slogan at Remake is wear your values. You know, it's about remaking our connections with our closet, but the people who make our clothes. And in the early days, we did exactly that. You know, a lot of going undercover, giving you the faces of who makes your clothes? What is the face behind that label made in China, made in Bangladesh, made in Cambodia, but Once we started to educate people, very quickly, it became clear that people wanted to know, well, what do I do? You know, I don't want to feel terrible. It's very complicated. This is an industry that's not really regulated. I don't know which clothes are better for the world and for the women, which ones are worse. And so, you know, the other two parts of Remix work quickly beyond the Maiden series and a lot of the education work became around transparency. So. On our site, remake.world, we now have a brand directory. Um, you know, as a nonprofit, we're a watchdog. We say, "Hey, this pair of jeans, this top, this dress is better for workers than that," and it gives the people an easy way to wear their values, shop their conscience. Um, and then the other piece of work, which I know you were eager to talk about, is advocacy. You know, yes. I'm always struck by how much people think that somehow we're going to buy away. Into a more sustainable future, that somehow by making the right buying choices, we're going to fight climate change or gender justice. But the truth is, we have to get our policymakers to do the work, to get our regulation to work. And so that's where a lot of our campaigning, you know, during um, COVID, it's been the pay up campaign that went viral, assuring that wages went back to workers. Um, a remake is really here to do those three things, you know: educate you on why you should care, try and give you the transparent brand directory so you can shop your values, and then give you an easy way to campaign and really use your voice for gender justice and climate justice in the fashion industry.
0: Yeah, and and I have to say, when I expressed this, you know, when we talked before, you know, like my utter shock and horror at what happens you know, when COVID hit. And I think it would be really great if you could kind of explain actually what happened, you know, obviously, you know, you know, last year when COVID hit, like companies went into lockdown, fashion companies mm-hmm. and you know, everything's shut up the the world over. What happened to these women in these factories and what happened to those orders? Yeah. So, you know, end of February, uh, a lot of us didn't quite know what what we were in for.
1: You know, I remember the early days we were like, oh, we're going to be locked down for two, three weeks and then it'll all be fine. But, you know, this (laughs) pandemic got the better of us globally. It was spreading very quickly. And so a lot of cities were shutting down. The retail stores were closed and fashion brands were really worried about sluggish online sales, closed retail stores. And so the very first thing brands did was a knee-jerk reaction of cancelling all orders, all orders that had already been produced for them or that were in production. And I think for people listening in, it's important to understand that, you know, the fashion industry operates completely on debt, which is just incredible if you think about it. So factories buy the fabric, you know, women spend untold hundreds of hours sewing the product the product gets shipped and it's common industry practice that you don't get paid for 60 90 to 120 days the reason being that the industry is trying to see what sells and then is dealing with you know paying their suppliers but basically pushing all risk down to the factory base so when covid hit and retail stores shut down suppliers started reporting to us that they were waking up this is late february early march of last year With hundreds of emails of just order cancellation, order cancellation, I don't want it. And the crazy thing is that these were goods that had already, in many ways, they were on ships, they were on boats arriving to the UK and the US and Europe. They had already arrived in ports in some instances, in some places, they were ready to be shipped from the factories. And so what that meant was that thousands of the people who make our clothes were not Getting paid for work that they had already done. And as union leaders, labor organizers started to go out into the streets to protest, we were like, well, what can we do as a citizen community, as a community that cares so much? And so, in the early days, um, we literally, as a very tiny all-woman team, just held up these signs, you know, uh, on Instagram of pay up. And we didn't know at that time. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. How much did we, this would resonate with all of us as citizens, as fashion professionals, to say, "Oh my gosh, here's the industry doing this again," you know, forgetting the people who make our clothes. That movement ended up going viral. And one of the reasons I think pay up really, you know, this is a silver lining when it comes to COVID was a lot of the retail and warehouse workers had similarly in the US, in Europe, been mistreated, saw solidarity in terms of what was happening with garment workers. You know, we had models like Amber Valletta and Cameron Russell saying, this is how, you know, modeling contracts are also, this is not right. And so we campaigned, we campaigned hard. You know, anytime these brands tried to have a flash sale on their, on Twitter or on Instagram or on their website, it would just citizen community would take over and say, we're not buying anything till you pay up. And that relentless campaigning at the we uh, have calculated at the beginning of the pandemic, forty billion dollars worth of orders were cancelled. That billion dollars, billion dollars.:
0: I mean that that's utterly utterly shocking. I, I didn't realize it was quite that large. I mean, I, I knew it was very large. It and a huge just, just, just remind us like which countries were mainly affected as well.
1: So the countries, you know, a lot of our clothes come from places where workers already don't make a living wage. So Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Ethiopia, you know, the average worker in Ethiopia makes $24 a month. So you can just imagine if they're not going to be paid or paid half. The impact
0: was really swift and devastating. You know, and, we and, were, yeah. and these are countries also that have no social security i mean if you don't if you don't get paid i mean you you don't eat right that's exactly right you know
1: if you don't get paid there isn't any unemployment benefits there isn't any safety nets to fall back upon and so if you don't get paid you don't eat and literally you know 10 months into the pandemic we're now hearing of malnutrition hunger in the supply chain, workers opting to eat you know, one meal instead of two, and a rise in gender-based violence. I mean, this is something else for people to understand. Most of the people on the factory floor are women, and they are women of color. And when you have this pressure cooker situation of factories not being paid, all the supervisors, managers are men, and they want to press, 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 push, push workers to work harder because you're getting less orders, you're getting paid less. So you're trying to move things as quickly as possible, which means verbal assault, physical assault, sexual assault also goes up. But all of that ties directly to the purchasing practices, the behavior of these large brands. But the silver lining here, and this is where I really do see the power of us, particularly Mm. women coming together is, you know, we got 25 of those brands that had originally canceled orders to pay up. We were able to recoup 22 billion off that stolen 40 billion in money. And it really, that's what it was. It was stolen money. And it was really through you know hating brands where it hurts their reputation, which tends to live online, especially during COVID when. You know, stores continued to open and close. And a lot of brands told us it was, you know, everyday citizens saying, not going to buy
0: anything till you pay up. And that's really what solidarity looks like. Yeah. And, and, and I just think it's amazing. I mean, I just like, you know, this is new power. This is like us as, as global citizens saying this behavior is not OK. You know, and and I'm just—I mean, I—you uh, know—it moves me to tears what you have done. You know, because that's just extraordinary, and and you literally have saved lives with 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 the work and the money that you you have have. have and had.
1: I really think of it as this is all of us. You know, important journalists like you t- telling these stories. You know, we had press and it was a lot of women like, I want to tell these stories, you know, influencers and models using their platform for good. And what I was really struck by was a lot of the retail staff that was furloughed, also many hourly wage workers saying they did this to us and they d- doing this to us when they work for Topshop or Gap or what have you, and also doing it to us, you know, in those supply chains. So really workers rising up to say enough. And here we are, you know, 10 months later in the pandemic and you can really see how the inequity within the industry is really just embedded because as a lot of these companies posted annual profit, you saw that. Shareholders were rewarded, executives were handsomely paid. Many of these companies made millions, if not billions, in profit. And you know, our work is still not done. You know, partly the next iteration of payup is now to say, share your profits, because pay up was just the minimum you could do, right? These orders were already canceled, and all we were asking you to do is take the goods that you had ordered. But now that we know that these companies have made pandemic profit, and to your point, these workers have nothing, right? No safety nets, no social security. What's to happen to this generation of women as we continue to shelter in place? Everyone's in sweatpants. No one's buying a lot of clothes. Stores continue to shut and open and close. And on the other end, you've got workers who are still reporting, you know, violence hunger, stolen wages, pregnant women are often the first to be fired because there's a sense that she can't work hard enough. And the insane thing is this industry has deemed the women who make our clothes essential workers, right? Not because she's making our masks, but because somehow getting us cheap goods is essential work. But if she gets covid you know, which is what we're also picking up is hotspots of COVID, whether in Leicester in UK or, you yeah. know, in Los Angeles or in Dhaka, Bangladesh, there is no way to have the right kind of
0: healthcare either. Right, and, and, and sweatshop conditions, which are sweatshop conditions. I mean, you know, no joke. And, and you, know, <laughs> you know, there is no protection and they're, and they're forced to go into work. And, and my understanding from the cases I've read because they've been forced to go into work with COVID as well, because they're not the factories are very hot.
1: You know, it's um, there isn't a lot of air circulation. You're not going to be wanting to wear a mask in that kind of heat, especially if your salary is tied to how quickly you're putting units of goods out. Um, you don't. You have to usually take permission to go to the bathroom, so it's not as though you can wash your hands. So it's a perfect storm in terms of covid outbreaks you know the part of this is also to stay hopeful right and it's to say there's so much conversation now around building back better and what can we learn from this pandemic and the industry has been very quick to rush to say we're going to build back better we're going to be
0: thinking I, I, about- I, i'm like forget right. the build back i mean like yeah. like like please can we not use that like build forward i mean like why do we want to go back i mean the model is broken Like, let's, let's, let's really, you know, this is, you know, an industry full of visionary, amazing, like, superlative, creative people. I mean, like, we all need to just reimagine this industry so that it is a win-win for everybody involved in it. You know, the workers, nature, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, this should not be an industry kind of destroying our planet and destroying people. I mean, you know, these are beautiful things that people should enjoy wearing you know, okay. without thinking about like, you know, oh my God, did the person I, I, I you know, who made this get fed, you know, or <laughs> I
1: mean. Can you imagine how you look at that, you know, beautiful piece of art that we put on our bodies differently if we knew, you know, much as a slogan says, wear your values, that it represented our value system. So many of us, we want to leave a future planet for our children. We want to be thinking about climate justice. You know, we care very much about gender justice. You know, I'm always amazed by all the women who wear, like, the feminist T-shirt and girls will rule the world. And I'm like, well, you know, it wasn't actually a woman or a young girl who made
0: that for you. And is the world really going to be better off for her? that. You know, it starts with the farmer, the female farmer often growing, growing the, you know, the crops. And, and it, you know, we need to think right back through through the supply chain and really appreciate everything that goes into our garments, whether it's, you know, the amount of water and have a reverence for them, you know, and the people who made them. And, 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 I, and I know that's part of your plan. So I'd love to hear, you know, please please share with us kind of what, you know, what's your plan for building forward better? <laughs> I love this. I'm going to start using this era, building forward. So, you know, we
1: knew as even we were in the trenches fighting for workers to get paid that we had to come out of here with a narrative that was worker-centric. And so we have launched the Pay Up Fashion Coalition. It's, you know, payupfashion.com for anyone who wants to visit. And there are seven action points that are written by labor organizers and garment workers themselves to say, Here is the path forward that is worker-centric that assures that the industry is truly sustainable and just. You know, in the short term, it really is going to be about pay severance, pay direct relief. You know, the, the billions that we are still in the hole from a wages standpoint, we just need to get money in the hands of this generation of women as quickly as possible. So that's short term. But in the longer term, you know, part of our work is really about Calling upon politicians and regulators to do their job. Here is a $2.4 trillion industry that's mostly deregulated, whether they market to us, what materials they put in, what chemicals, who makes it, how those people are treated, none of it is regulated. And so we know from 20 years of the industry regulating itself and voluntary codes of conduct and auditing that it's not working. And so the way to build forward really is. For regulation, you know, there's the European human rights due diligence conversations in Europe, right here in California, there's a minimum wage bill for the garment industry, which is the largest production hub in the US. We can pay workers $15 an hour and still be profitable. You know, it is time to do that. Uh, I think there's also a lot of conversation that we're involved in around contracts, you know. How is it that currently brands have force majeure clauses and their contracts would say, if there's major forces in play, I'm just going to cancel the contract. Doesn't matter if you made the goods, doesn't matter if you ship them. And a lot of suppliers say, we haven't even ever read the contracts because we so desperately need the business. So, you know, better laws around bankruptcy, better contracts, all of that is going to set us up on a path. But I think for everyday people listening in, it's to say, you know, we need to be thinking of ourselves as citizens first. We've certainly learned this here in the U.S., you know, it's not just the once every four years voting in the federal elections. It's getting involved at a state level, at a local level, in our cities to really make sure that the people we are electing are doing their job. That is a lot more powerful Then anything you do as a vegan or a conscious consumer, all those things are important. But really, at the end of the day, your citizen power is most important. So, you know, for people who want to be a part of the movement, join us. We make our campaigns easy and actionable. And it's a way to build forward,
0: as you say. I absolutely love it. And and, and I, you know, this is something I'm passionate about with you know the whole start summer campaign is 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 that really if we take an action and that's multiplied by so many i mean like you know marie claire has has kind of 91 million women and girls who 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 you know engage with our titles you know all around the world that is i mean that is such a powerful movement and it's like you know if you care about this please take an action you know and 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 i would you would you like to kind of share with us like where people need to go like which which website which hashtags so you know if they can please kind of get involved please support this
1: yeah, I mean, together as women, I really do believe we can build the type of world we want, not just for ourselves, but for our next generation. And so, if you're interested in keeping up with our education content, with our campaigns, our Instagram handle is Remake Our World. Our website is remake.world. So, very easy to understand. You know, follow the hashtag, pay up, and share your profits because we will hold this industry accountable. We cannot forget that there is a generation of women who we can really be keeping safe during this pandemic and beyond.
0: Yeah, and I was also going to add, because I think you're too polite to ask, but, you know, there is also a donate page. So if you do, if you're one of the lucky ones that does have some spare uh, cash, you know, please consider donating it to this amazing course. Um, You're so kind. Really
1: you know, that is my Achilles heel. I never asked for money. But the truth is, as a nonprofit, we take no money from brands. Any of our research is open source. All our educational materials are free. We teach in colleges and high schools. We get workers paid. We've even provided direct relief to our labor organizer partners. And so if you can donate, know that every dollar goes towards the movement and the campaign and makes a difference.
0: Uh, i i i mean the work you're doing is so staggering and and so extraordinary thank you really i mean like a huge thank you for all that you're doing on behalf of these many many kind of women who you know who you're giving them a voice and, and 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 that is just so incredible and i think you know if we help you know like together we all rise right you know and and and, you know, this really is kind of sister for sister and we, we all help each other. And I, I, I think it's just so beautiful what you're doing. Thank you. Well, I love what
1: you're doing. And as you said, sister, we can build the type of world that we want.
0: We sure can. Thank you so much. Thank you.